Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studios here in Beijing. I am today your main host, Jeremy Goldcorn. Not solo, because Kaiser is actually here with Hello. us. Hello. He's just got a bit of a strained voice after several speaking engagements, so I am doing the introductions. How are you, Kaiser? And can you please tell our listeners why your mobile phone's ringtone is the Kenny G tune going home? Do you hate your friends? I do. I hate them all. I mean, it's to discourage them from bothering me with with annoying phone calls. Uh, I chose that one deliberately. It's my favorite Kenny G track. I think, as you know, a heavy metal musician, I, I should order you to chop all your hair off, really, for that. <laughs> or I could I could make it look like yours. I mean, you do, after all, look just like Stop. Kenny G. Stop. Okay, <laughs> let's move. Today, we are delighted to have back with us on the show Isabel Hilton, journalist, writer, broadcaster, new media publisher, and what I might describe as social entrepreneur. Yeah. Welcome, Isabel. Heavens, Jerry, thank you. <laughs> social entrepreneur. Who knew that? what I did? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Isabel... Uh, Began her uh, relationship, if one can call it that, with China as a university student at Edinburgh University, where she studied Chinese. And um, as she became the secretary of the China Scottish uh, Association, based at her university, and that led her to be placed on MI5's so-called Christmas tree list, which prevented her from employment with the BBC in 1976. So now she's reduced to the cynical podcast. Um, <laughs> it's well, no, a I high joke. point of my career, <laughs> Jeremy. What are I you joke. talking about? That did not stop her journalistic career because she, she, she worked uh, as a journalist and editor for the Daily Express. She was the Latin American affairs editor at the Sunday Times. She uh, was a journalist and editor, I think, at The Independent. Indeed. Uh, also has written a regular column for The Guardian. Uh, she's been presenter on BBC Radio. She's made documentaries. Uh, she's written books. She's written articles and essays. And it's uh, quite difficult to really summarize what she's done. She's also an officer of the Order of the British Empire. <laughs> That's a tiny bit embarrassing. You have to think of it as, as like being a kind of model worker, or, or well, May the first model worker. For the Queen, a, though. A Danway model <laughs> worker. So I didn't introduce her as Isabel Hilton OBE. So <laughs> anyway, enough of the nonsense. Welcome, Isabel. It's really great to have you. We're going to talk about a few things, particularly the environment and your website, China Dialogue. But before we look at your current activities, I would actually like to give a better introduction to some of the things we've just talked about than we did the last time you were on the Seneca podcast. Um, so first of all, when and why did you first come to China? What's your China biography? Well, I first came to China as a student, actually, in 1973. My first engagement with China was through the language, and it, it, it did indeed turn into a degree at Edinburgh, but it began in the unlikely surroundings of Cincinnati, Ohio, where I have to be a bit careful because the, the real story <coughs> is that I found myself as an exchange student in, when oh, I was dear. 17. <laughs> Yes, one might well say that, but then there might be people from Cincinnati listening. And I have to say, the people were very kind. Oh, they are. But it did feel like a long way away from anywhere. And My folks met in Ohio. I like Ohio. Indeed. Uh, but to get through that year, I decided I would teach myself Chinese. Why not? <laughs> and then, you know, one one thing led to another. I did my degree. It At the time, you're probably too young to remember, but there was a thing called the Cultural Revolution going on. I've and um, <laughs> one couldn't actually get to China uh, for quite some time. So that became possible in 1973. And the first batch of, uh, of British students, um, 12 of us, came across the prairie in our covered wagons to the Languages Institute 
in Beijing. I was there for a year, and then I went to Fudan in Shanghai for a further year. Wow, 73. My God. It was an interesting time. I, a poor deluded fool that I was, I'd come to study literature, but it had pretty much all been banned. <laughs> right. And so we did things like working on communes you and could working still read in factories. Like I think that was about. We read, we could read Lushun. Apart from that, ba it was Jin. an awful lot of model opera, Gaming Yan Ban Xi, about which I know more than any human being should have to. And really, to relieve the boredom of that, we were quite keen to go out and work and meet ordinary people. Wow. Jeremy, all our bragging rights about our, our pioneering days in China have just been completely removed from us. Most people, uh, when confronted with Isabel's uh, biography. True. But Isabel, unlike many Chinese people, you've managed to develop uh, both expertise and a large body of writing about many, many other places. Um, so, uh, you know, um, you became uh, the Latin American uh, affairs editor at the Sunday Times. How did you start um, writing about Latin, Latin America and how was the tra transition from China to Latin America? What is the difference? Well, basically, there were no jobs in Chinese. This was regarded as a very eccentric thing to have done right. uh, at the time. Actually, you know, that, that basically ended only about 10 years ago, I guess. <laughs> well, <it was laughs> when very, I first came out, it was considered very eccentric. <laughs> it, was, it was very much in force in those days. And, and so, you know, I had to make a living. Um, I was working for the Sunday Times when Margaret, well, actually, when a man called Leo Paulo Fortunato Galtieri, decided to invade the Falkland Islands. Wow. And Margaret Thatcher decided to send the fleet in response. And amongst other bits and pieces of my education, um, I, I spoke Spanish and French and German. Fluently, um, I believe. Fairly decently. And Spanish was the relevant one. I hate one. you. Anyway, <laughs> go ahead. So I was dispatched as a very junior reporter to Uruguay, to um which was still receiving ships from the Falkland Islands to intercept people who were coming off the islands. Um, and then, uh, by one of those strokes of, of mixed fortune, uh, the Sunday Times' correspondent in Buenos Aires got arrested uh, whilst training his binoculars on various military airfields and was imprisoned in a place called Ushuaia, which, for those who haven't been there, is the most southerly jail in the world. It's uh, well, in Tierra del Fuego. Right. Absolutely. And I got a call. I got one of those calls from the, you get from the desk which said, uh, Hello, Isabel, have you seen Simon, the man in question? And I said, well, no, but I was in Montevideo and he was in Buenos Aires. So it went on like that. I was then sent down there to get a lawyer and go and see if I could get him out of jail, which I, I tried valiantly to do. Uh, but the war was just beginning. They were kept in jail. So I was then sent back to Buenos Aires and covered the war for three months. Well, covered the situation there for three months until my visa expired. And really, in the course of that, thought there's a whole continent here, which is fascinating. Mm -hmm. So I covered Latin America for the rest of the 80s. And it was a time of falling dictatorships and wars in Central America, all kinds of things going on. And uh, it was just an astonishing period. Wow. Did you, I mean, did you, have, you so you covered the, El Sal the Salvadoran Civil War and the Nicaraguan Civil War. Absolutely. Did you ever meet any of the legendary, I mean, Violeta Chamorro or Daniel Ortega or anyone? I met Dan I certainly yeah. met Daniel Ortega wow. several wow. times, yes. Uh, he, he turned out not so nice afterwards, I oh, have really? to say. Yeah, he, he took a, a rather kind of alarming turn towards the kind of right-wing populism that, that's rather too prevalent in that part of the world. Um, but at the time, he was a Sandinista hero. Sure. And, and they were fairly accessible, actually. You know, they were, there was quite a large press corps, but they held fairly regular um, 
press events, including, I remember, a rather bizarre attempt at doing a phone-in, which if you knew the state of the phone service in Nicaragua, you, you knew was kind, of, was kind of brave. So we all turned up in the studio and there was Daniel Ortega and a telephone, uh, which rang, and it was a wrong number. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the kind of thing that happened. Oh, that, that, that's very funny. Can, you, uh, can we go back in time a little bit from that and tell us a little bit about the Christmas list, the MI5's Christmas list, and, you know, what, you know what, what, what was the background to that? Well, I mean, she'd been, you know, in China in 1973. Well, she needed <laughs> obviously, she yeah. was a terrible commie. I mean, you have, to, you have to understand there was a certain schizophrenia about China because at the same time as Edward Heath was restoring relations and, you know, became and was very keen on China really till for the rest of his life. There was still in the British state the notion that anything to do with any communist country was subversive. So the Scotland-China Association, which, as you said, was based around the university, but also had people like the Dean of the Faculty of Divinity in it. You know, these were pretty upstanding citizens. And it was certainly not a subversive organisation, but it was on the blacklist of the of special branch of, of the secret police. Well, you were certainly tied with, like, Committee of Concerned Asian Scholars and... and... That kind of thing, probably, probably. though they were American. Right, um, right, right. But, but, you know, it was, uh, it was pretty harmless. But they have lists. All secret police have lists, and they're not very discriminating. But what wasn't known until it was investigated by a journalist called David Lee, who, by coincidence, I knew, was that this list was applied to the BBC, so that, in effect, the secret police were licensing journalists at the BBC. So they would determine who could get in, if you were wanting to be a mainstream journalist. And once you were in the BBC, they would also keep an eye on you so that if you were seen at demonstrations or, you know, part of an anti-nuclear movement or whatever, the little Christmas tree would be attached to the file, which was a code for do not promote beyond a certain point. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's your Christmas present. could <laughs> actually sack you, but, but you know, they could, they could signal to or you know, anyone who had anything to do with you that you shouldn't be trusted beyond a certain point. So Goddamn this, state-run media. <laughs> absolutely. So this, this journalist published the story, and it became a great scandal. And the BBC then said, oh, heavens, gosh, yes, no, we won't do that anymore except, of course, for the World Service, where we might have to. Um, and the whole thing was a, an enormous embarrassment to them. <laughs> it's fascinating. Now, I'm going to dig up another thing from your past, if I may. You knew Christopher Hitchens, and I, I, I think maybe even you were a friend of his. And sorry for my slightly tabloidy instincts. Or, um, but, I mean, <laughs> did you ever talk to him about China? And, you know, what did he think about really China? read Hitch on China at all. <laughs> China was a little beyond Hitch's view, I think. You know, he had, he was the most uh, extraordinary polymath. Uh, but I'm not sure that he ever came here. He did, however, have quite strong views on the Dalai Lama, and they weren't entirely positive. Oh, uh, no. He, I mean, he's in of a, of a class with Mother Teresa, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, he, Indeed. He, he's, he's quite the iconoclast. I mean, he, you know, he, he loves to take on these things. Jin yeah. Sook Poppinjay that he was. He, yeah, he was a big controversialist. And, uh, and uh, yeah, he, he... But I don't think that he... I can't recall any particular conversation with Christopher, I have to say, about China. What was his um, problem with the Dalai Lama, though? My God. Well, he was very uh, aggressively secular. So he had right, a, a of suspicion so. of any uh, really? uh, religious Hitch? figure. Oh, sure, sure. And um, 
he he I mean he just regarded I think it was partly with Christopher that he looked at the kind of people who were enthusiastic for the Tibet cause and decided right. he didn't like them so that Dalai Lama became tarred with the right. same that's, brush that's, that's basically me I mean it's it's more out of my hatred of Richard Gere <laughs> hey, oh I know I feel the same I mean I, I, I understand uh, yeah, they would disassociate the themselves with, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, so, so do I um, okay, I would like to start moving on to the sort of the second subject we'll start to, to, to look at, which is what more, more connected with what you're doing now. Um, before we get to what you're actually doing now, the sort of transition from your life as a, a traditional journalist uh, maybe was um, you became the editor of Open Democracy in 2006. Uh, I think it was 2005, around Sorry, then, 2005, anyway. Sorry, 2005, mm. 2005, yeah. Um, and uh, you did that for a few years. So this is a website devoted to publishing stuff. Well, opendemocracy.net. I mean, it's self, self-explaining, self I guess. And when you left Open Democracy to start doing what you're doing now, you wrote a very interesting farewell editorial. And I, I thought there were two interesting things about it. I mean, on the one hand, you talk about how the mainstream media doesn't publish certain types of stories and the opportunity of the internet is to publish these types of stories. And you mentioned that in contrast to journalists you knew, possibly friends of yours, um, who came from a very traditional mindset, who basically said, I won't read anything on the internet. Um, you know, why did you kind of jump into open democracy at that time, which was a little bit in, you know, that was in, I was active on the internet at that point too. It was in advance of most of your traditional media peers. Why did you do that? And do you think the people who say they won't read anything on the internet, are they really eating their words now or are they still, you know... I think they're very much eating their words. Yeah, and and I think that that decade was, was the transitional decade. You know, the, the, the internet was around, but it... As, as I wrote in that piece, traditional, I don't think any traditional media journalist had any idea of the challenge that it was going to pose, you know, to the business model, to the reporting model, to the availability of information. It was completely extraordinary. And th- at that time, they still had the sense that, you know, real information, verified, fact-checked, uh, responsible information had to be in print. And, and who were these people who were writing on the web? But the transition, I, I got involved with open democracy, you know, in, in the way one often does get involved with things, because the people who started it were, were friends. And um, they had a, they had set up this, you know, very interesting site where all kinds of things were being published but the editorial was you know just a little bit heavy and a little bit you know unappealing so I was asked to come in and and you know see what what could be done with it um, which I did thinking that you know this was going to be a, a temporary thing and that I would do this for a while and then go back to long-form journalism and and books and the other things that I was doing but while I was there um it occurred to me that open democracy, interesting though it was, and it described itself as a as a global current affairs website, but it was pretty much Atlanticist. It, you know, mm-hmm. the the big power was America, and everything was seen essentially through the lens of American power and in relation to American power, and China, which by then, after all, you know, was coming up very fast, sure. was was kind of nowhere. So that's when I began to put together the two things of the possibilities of the of the emergence of the internet and the possibilities of engaging of all kinds of people being able to engage in a conversation and and in an exchange with China that just hadn't been possible before 
So it grew out very directly of the of the open democracy experience. And of course, since then, you know, we've seen several mainstream newspapers become simply web based, you know, the Christian Science Monitor, for instance, mm. solid newspaper once a week, on right, the web. Right, right, right. Um, and every newspaper that I that I have any dealings with, the Guardians uh, is is way, suffering, yeah, sure. is moving towards the web because the print model, you know, really no longer works. The web model doesn't quite work either yet, but where, but you know it's going to have to be made to work. But we have to figure something out. To me, out. the, the yeah. debate isn't the medium itself, but but uh, sort of the, the approach to news writing. Uh, I I don't know. I I hope both of you. To have, me, the uh, debate is where does the fucking money come from? But, uh, <laughs> well, you, you know, I speak as an entrepreneur. That's a big. That's a big part of it. He means uh, Philistine. Uh, Philistine. You, guys, no, I don't mean a Philistine. I mean somebody has to pay salaries. You know, sure. you can have lovely debates, but where's the cash? You know? but, yeah. but, have, you, have you guys read that, that that debate in the New York Times? Is Glenn Greenwald the future of news? Yes, that was fascinating. Absolutely yeah. fascinating. But oh, it, it's also true, that. as yeah. as as a lot of paid employed journalists say. That a lot of what is on the web is actually actually needs professional journalism to feed off, you know, sure. and that's still true. And I think that you know, we're, it's delusional to imagine that that healthy societies can exist without vigorous journalism, without a, a professional journalist yes. uh, cadre, uh, like a, a corpus of people who are willing to yeah. investigate things. Yeah, I agree. So, I mean, as part of that, and obviously your belief in that, you left Open Democracy and you founded your, uh, uh, you founded China Dialogue, which is a fantastic website that has, since 2006, been publishing bilingual and I think and everything, bilingual. everything so, is translated, exactly. including the comments. It's really the only site ever in the history so of the universe admirable. to have ever done that. Really, only site ever in the universe to translate everything English and Chinese. All real so, comments, yeah. And it's about the environment and environmental problems in China, which are obviously, of the problems China faces, some of the most terrifying and biggest and things we, 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 we face every day. Um, so you were last on Seneca, I think it was more than a half, uh, a year and a half ago with Jonathan Watts, who at the time was a Beijing correspondent uh, or Asia correspondent uh, on the environment, I think, for The Guardian. I really regret missing that one. That was one that I missed. And, yeah, uh, it, was a, it, it is. Uh, you know, but sometimes it's good not to have any Americans on the show. So um, <laughs> we talked about the positive news. Sorry, sorry. I don't know where that came from. Uh, we talked about the positive news coming out of the China <coughs> Environmental Journalism Awards that I think you and uh, you were in town to present and, and is a, a project that China Dialogue has done together with The Guardian. But we also went over a depressing litany of problems poisons and plagues that threaten to turn China into a toxic wasteland. Has anything changed in the last year and a half? Is there some hope for us? Well, I think that if you were to do the measurements on the general toxicity, you probably wouldn't find it had got much better. But, you know, let's look at the good side. There are, we've had a much more, much more, commitment from the government, I think, in the last couple of years and, you know, talks about, the leadership talks about ecological China, about ecological civilization, beautiful China and so on, which, you know, these slogans sound rather empty and puzzling, but all through the state machine, there are people that are trying to put real policies to this. And you need those signals from the top, those commitments from the top, before those policies really uh, get enacted. The In- signals from the top, do you think that their response to, to, uh, to 
uh, noise from the bottom. I, I mean, think to, they're to reading China reaction. dialogue, but I mean, yeah, apart from that, um, apart from that, look, they, you know, in the twelfth five-year plan and even in the eleventh five-year plan, you've had a recognition that that this is completely unsustainable. It can't go on like that. And, you know, when a government understands that it's looking over the edge of a cliff, it does try to do something about it. This is pretty difficult to do. So whilst, you know, you had a massive cleanup of the air in 2008 for the Olympics, the business as usual Beijing is what we see now. And it's very, very bad. And it will take a long time to clear it up because, you know, quite fundamental things are creating this this bad air. Coal-fired power, cars, things like that, which are very, very difficult to, to, to change. So that on the good side, there has been some progress in things like energy efficiency. Uh, there's been progress on things like uh, sulfur pollution, sulfur dioxide, what, what's called nox and socks in the business. So nitrous oxide and sulfur dioxide. Nox and socks. Nox and socks. Um, Don't start reciting Seuss to me, please. <laughs> why, are you, why are you so down my Seuss? I love Seuss. I just, you get it wrong. I don't get it wrong. Nox and socks. And, and the Yellow River. Pop pop, uh, the Yellow River is a good story. The Yellow River failed to reach the sea entirely in about 2007. So China's mother river dried up. This is very bad. Um, And that got attention from the government. And there's a remediation program for the Yellow River, and the Yellow River flows again. It's much better managed than it was. So, you know, there are pockets of of good news. So uh, in terms of news and, you know, how we understand news and information... You started China Dialogue in 2006. So at the time, blogs were already big in China. In fact, we first met, I think, before you started the site, and we talked about blogs. And um, But back then, there was no Weibo, and nobody really had a camera, a camera in their cell phone. There were no smartphones. Um, and there were far fewer internet users. Has the massive uptake of mobile internet and everything that goes with it changed environmental reporting and awareness in China, the way people understand the environment and the information that we can uh, get? I think China. it's had the most fantastic effect, actually, um, from and, and it has the potential to have even more. You know, digital information, collecting, disseminating, networking digital information <laughs> changes the whole picture. And look at what happened um, during the, the 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 terrible smoggy days in air 2012, yeah. and then air apocalypse in 2013. There was a Chinese NGO that was handing out uh, digital handheld monitors, because the government at the time was collecting information on PM 2.5, the smallest particles that get into your lungs, but it wasn't publishing uh, that information. But once you have people with monitors, they can read it for themselves and they can publish it themselves. And the government is now forced to to publish far more data than it than it did before. Yeah, I think that you'll, you'll get no debate from me, certainly, on this. That it was, it was absolutely essential in turning around the, the thinking of, of your average Chinese person. I know, uh, I mean, my wife, who used to sort of um, taunt... Mark. Mark Mark as far as for caring caring so much about something. Uh, She's she's now, I mean, more sort of fanatic about it than I I am. It's funny because I don't think that anyone outside China really, you know, PM 2.5 isn't a subject of daily conversation. But it's the first thing I look at in the morning. Yeah. And you go into any little supermarket here and they're selling masks with PM 2.5 labeled on the outside. I doubt they work. But still, it's become absolute common common currency. And that's digital information. And you could do the same with soil pollution, which is a state secret still in China. Soil pollution is 
is reckoned to be extremely serious here. Well, and once in a while, you have a story, you know, cadmium and rice. You and do like because that. that it gets taken up into the food. But right. but the government has done a nationwide survey of soil pollution, which it has not published, oh. and which the ministry has said is a you know it's a state secret, um, which suggests to me that it's probably pretty serious. <laughs> probably worse. Than right. That. So can and we, and soil pollution. I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, Jeremy, and we Jeremy's weeping in the corner here. <laughs> but it's um, harder to clear up than air pollution because oh you know no. what do you do with soil? Okay. So what else is wrong? What about the water? Water's terrible, Let's but that's to easy water. to fix. And, uh, in, when we turn to the water, actually, I'd like to turn to it in a particular way because you have a new project, which I think is connected with China Dialogue, called thethirdpole.net. And the tagline of this project is Understanding Asia's Water Crisis. So what is Asia's Water Crisis? And what is the site intended to do? And why did you want a separate sort of issue-specific site outside of China Dialogue? Well, it, it did. It began as a project of China Dialogue. The third pole is is a, a term that that was coined to describe all the snow and ice in the Himalaya, because that's that frozen water is the largest store of fresh water outside the North Pole and the South Pole. So it became known for shorthand. It's easier than saying the Himalayan cryosphere, mm-hmm. things that people don't understand. That's the third pole. And all of Asia's great rivers, including the Yangtze, the Yellow River, the Brahmaputra, the, the Mekong, Ganges, and so on, mm-hmm. essentially start as glacier-derived um, streams up in the Himalaya. Now, with climate change, those glaciers are melting. They're melting slowly, but they're melting. And so this is going to impact every single river. Those rivers flow across nine countries, and none of them have a a river agreement the way the Rhine does or the Danube (coughs) does, which would uh, manage them properly as Mm -hmm. entire river systems, and which would sort out the problems that occur in any river between the upper and the lower Riparians, the people who live, you know, the, in this case, the Chinese the and the Indians. The riparians. I'm afraid the, that's I, the I, term. I, I, I'm sorry no, about No, no, it's good. <laughs> I, I like it. I like it. It's, it's so, lovely. It, so it, China, it makes me think of my Latin studying days. So China is the, is the Ur upper riparian. It's at the headwaters at, of almost all those rivers. And all the downstream countries are getting concerned. Uh, they're getting concerned about dam building in China. They're getting concerned about, you know, what happens to the flow when the glaciers retreat. Um, when the upper riparians are inconsiderate or negligent, indeed, what will and to won't the lower talk riparians? to them exactly. So the Mekong, you know, China's building great cascades of dams on the upper reaches of the Mekong in China, the Lansang, and uh, nobody knows what's going to happen to the to the to the Mekong because uh, it's the mainstream has never been dammed before. And dams have enormous impacts on things like sediment. So if you're in Bangladesh and you're sitting basically on a delta that has been built up by silt carried by the river, you worry if upstream that silt is going to be held back because right. you're already... You no longer at, have fertile soil to plow. Yeah, right? absolutely. Right. All kinds of things like that. So these things need to be managed as entire systems. And actually, they're treated like batteries. They're treated like... Place you know little sections where you can generate electricity, mm-hmm. and it has quite severe ecological effects. So the third pole was to try to create 
a rational conversation about these things across all these boundaries. So north of the Himalaya with south of the Himalaya, India with Pakistan, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and so on and so forth. I mean, it's a pretty ambitious project. But if you look at the way these things are written about across South Asia, they're all seen from a nationalist perspective. So if you're Bangladesh, you think India's stealing our water. And if you're India, you think China's stealing our water, and so on. And that's not, that's not the way these things get sorted. So we were trying to supply information that took a, just a, a cooler, you know, more cooperative approach. How is that going? Because it, it sometimes strikes me that as much as we, you know, may quote Kipling and say East is East and West is West and never the twain shall meet. And often it does seem that China and the West have no way of really talking properly to each other. In some ways, it seems to me that China and its Southeast Asian and South Asian neighbors are, you know, find it even more difficult to talk to each other. So your experience with the third net, I mean, how have you found, you know, are you seeing a kind of a dialogue or a conversation starting? How is that going? Uh, it's pretty uphill work, Jeremy. As yeah. you rightly noticed, this is now a separate site. One of the reasons that it's a separate site, although we also publish material from it on China Dialogue, but the main reason is that when, that when people in India saw a site with Chinese on it, they just wouldn't look at it. Right, they right. were just so paranoid about China. Right, it's like it kind they of said, got swastikas yeah, this or something. Is, yeah, exactly. This is yeah. Chinese government propaganda, yeah. right. you know, just because it, it had Chinese language in it. Right. So after... after all you Chinese know, are nasty commies and after all. Indeed. So yeah. we, we then did it just in English, and now we're beginning to publish in, in um, Urdu, Urdu and, and, yeah. and Nepali. And, and once you go down the South Asian language route, you can, you can go on forever, That's but right. we're going to oh, do the main right. ones. Right. So what about some of these multinational organizations like the Greater Mekong? Uh, are they are they addressing these issues? Are, are, is this on their agenda at all? Or is it just simply trade relationships? It, no, there, there is a, a Mekong River Commission, uh, which does address. But it, again, China's not part of it. Um, right, and China, of course, is, you know, the big right. power holder the upstream. Parks laws. Right. And, and none, I mean, there are, there's a, there's a, an Indus River Agreement between um, India and Pakistan, which the British wrote, uh-huh. um, but again, it's not a whole—it's not a whole river uh, deal, and it's rather limited. Um, so, you know, all of them need sourced sink agreements, like the Danube has, hmm. or the Colorado River. I want to—I want to go back a little bit um, to uh, the early discussion we were having uh, about. Uh, the impact of the internet on mobilizing people and awakening environmental consciousness. Uh, I've long believed, and I I think maybe, Jeremy, you you and I have talked about this before, that environmental issues really represent a a likely pole around which civil society might coalesce, perhaps even has already, you know, begun to meaningfully coalesce. How how, how would you characterize, Isabel, Beijing's attitude toward the nascent civil society that's focused on green issues? I mean, is it implacably hostile or... No, no, I wouldn't say it was implacably hostile, but I think it is pretty contradictory. Um, it's The starting point is that if you stop being a totalitarian government, then you no longer can do everything. And so, you know, you have this semi-market economy, you have a much more open society, and government can't do everything. So it needs civil society. It needs, and, and it's also true that no environmental crisis has ever been resolved without civil society. Right. So if you look at how other countries did it, there was a very vigorous press, there were NGOs, and, and some of them quite powerful NGOs that both mobilized people, but also went to court, fought legal cases, you know, lobbied for legislation, and all of that. It just can't work as a top-down thing. Now, there are 
the government certainly knows that. The Ministry of Environment certainly knows that. And they were very encouraging, certainly five or six years ago, towards uh, the environmental groups. And they did things like past um, access to information, freedom of information laws, the right to demand environmental data, all of that Except really. soil. <laughs> well, it, it, the, the, the implementation, as often in China, is not as good as the laws itself. But all of that came out of, of those movements. But at the same time, they are, of course, extremely conscious that it was environmental movements in Central and Eastern Europe before 1989 That's right. that organized, that environmental movements were important in the color revolutions and so on. So they, there is certainly a part of the Chinese state that thinks of these things as a kind of Trojan horse. And in some ways, it's not that I think the people who participate in them think of them as a Trojan horse. But it's the environment that has got the Chinese urban middle classes out on the streets again. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing from from um, 1989 to 2007. And in 2007, urban property owners c- start to come out to protest against PX plants, against right. incinerators, against all these things. Copper, lignum, processing plants. It, all of those right things. On. And so, yes, the, you know, it is, of course, in the end, it, it, it comes down to politics. And so the state has a very ambivalent view. That's the right word, ambivalent. Uh, I mean, the other the other question that I had for you, Isabel, um, I, I think you'd agree that in the case of environmental issues like global warming, as we've said, top-down policy is far from enough. Civil society, of course, plays a lot, but also just, just sort of grassroots popular attitudes um, that we hope will translate upward into behavioral cha- change. I mean, these are also very, very important in moving the needle on, our, on, on, on carbon emissions and other things like that. Uh, but one common attitude that, that I at least used to encounter fairly frequently from Chinese people I know, um, and this is especially so around the time of, of Copenhagen, um, this is this is one I know exists in officialdom as well, I suppose, but uh, there's this sense of kind of unfairness, of, of hypocrisy, uh, these, you know, uh, hypocritical browbeating Westerners who who, who are, are not not just in China. I would say that as right, India, <clears throat> Brazil. I mean, all, you know the whole South Africa. You see that South a lot. Right, like, right, right. You Westerners have polluted for you yeah, know, two hundred years, and, and now you tell us we can't. Yeah, right? you've eaten at you the hydrocarbon and, trough for one hundred and fifty you know, years, yeah. and now fuck you. I mean, how how are you? Yes. What's the the great little uh, story? I, I can't remember where I first read it. You know, China is that emaciated man coming to this feast, having you know barely made his bare minimum caloric intake when he sees uh, around this sumptuous feast a bunch of people with gout and and, and fatty livers and heart disease and all telling him, don't, don't eat the meat or don't touch the dairy. Stick to your tofu and your vegetables and you'll be fine. Uh, I mean, you know, they they think, fuck you, right? I mean, and I want the beef. I want the yeah, give yeah, me the beef. I want the carbon. Right, 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 right. Well, uh, you know, is that changing? First of all, and then I mean, I, I, I do you hear this as much? I mean, I think that, that I don't hear it as much. I'm 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 kind of optimistic that I think that that, that yeah. they've understood. You you you. St- it's still around a bit, but you know, there's a there's a kind of basic flaw in in well. There isn't a flaw in the historical case. It's sure. absolutely true that any country that had an industrial revolution got got wealthy on emitting carbon. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the moral case, I guess, is that we didn't know right. at the time. 
uh, and we didn't know till much, much later. Um, then you could say, okay, so what are we doing now? The answer is not enough. But, you know, all of this is recognized in the Kyoto Protocol, yeah, which absolutely. I know is not everyone's bedtime reading, but, you know, uh, the, the, the Kyoto Protocol explicitly it, it, says exempted China, it's the rich, right. ca- yeah, yeah. the rich countries need to do more and pay for it. And it set up the clean development mechanism, which China cashed in on royally. I mean, really, a lot of money came to China for things like wind farms and and so on. Huge amounts of money. China got the biggest share of of those funds. And that enabled, you know, China to develop an awful lot of what is now, you know, its It's own clean tech. So so China hasn't exactly been a victim here. Mm. It's Mm. also, I think, you know, the, the interesting thing is, you know, with China's development since the Kyoto Protocol was was um, was signed and ratified, China's now emitting as much per head as Europe is. Wow. And still has a long way to go. It's at about seven per ha- head already. Per seven head already. tons per capita. It's oh way above God. the global average. Well, Europe is, is, is exemplary in that in that regard. Well, but so. you know, we have to get down to about two tons per capita. So that is, you know, where we all have to get to. And if you are the Maldives you see your problem as China. You don't see your problem as as Europe these mm-hmm. days. You mm-hmm. think what is finally going to sink us and sink us very fast is China. The fact is that, you know, all of the countries that make this argument are going to have to decide whether they would rather have 10 glorious years of emitting carbon and then be in the same catastrophe as everybody else or whether they really have to choose another path at this point. Well, we are hearing this less, not only just from the general public, but also from officialdom. I don't, I don't, I don't hear this sort of, hey, wait a minute, now it's our turn at the trough quite, quite as, as, as often you know, as it, it did It does seem years, to have become a ago. part of the official uh, rhetoric, uh, although one does question, you know, it's different. The, the rhetoric and the action are not the same thing. Right. right. Well, but China has but it, the rhetoric needs to change first. So, the, and, yeah, and, that's and, changing, and actually, right? the, the, it, it is, is changing. changing yeah. Yes, and and you know, again, the twelve five year plan. It's kind of a blueprint for a sustainable development. It is very hard to do if you're still nearly seventy percent dependent on coal. Hmm. Really hard. But you know, they are making an effort. I'm. One could say that needs to be bigger. Yeah, it's always good so to hear from Isabel. So even a hostile foreign force like Isabel Hilton will, well, uh, at so the that's end the of the thing day, I, I wanna, there are some positive things. I, I want to clear her good name here. I think that she's she's one of the most fair and, and balanced is, and nuanced I'm, people I've. I've I, I'm glad to hear you say that, Kaiser. The other thing that I, I want to ask Isabel while we have her here is, you know, help us out with here. Give give us uh, us strategies for engaging our Chinese peers in dialogue on, on environmental issues where they do kind of exhibit some kind of hostility. Sometimes they feel preached to or lectured or hectored. Uh, what are, what are, what's your approach? I mean, how you, you, you seem to pull it off with a plum. Well, we think well, we see these things as common problems. You know, we, it's, it's in everybody's interest to sort this because in, actually it's in more in China's interest than anybody's el- anybody else's. Sure. If China is going to go on, you know, growing and, and if, Chinese people are to lead better lives. China has to deal with this. And there is experience from elsewhere on cleaning up rivers, on on regulation, on enforcement, on, you know, how you use the goodwill of your citizens that China perhaps, you know, could find speeded up the process of learning a little bit. Um, but, you know, there will be things in China that others will be learning from too. If China's clean tech, if China's, you know, cleaner industries really take off, 
then everyone's going to be coming to China to say, how did you do that? And can mm-hmm. we have some? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not just Tom Friedman. <laughs> Jeremy, do you have a, a recommendation for us this week? <laughs> yes, I do. It's, you know, one of our old favorites on the Seneca podcast is uh, Peter Hessler. And he's now increasingly actually publishing stuff from Egypt where yeah. he now lives. So there's a, a post, I think it's a blog post or maybe it's an article. But anyway, it, it appears to be free, even if you're not a, scr- a subscriber on the New Yorker's website called Morsi's Chaotic Day in Court. Uh, about um, you know yeah, Egypt Morsi, and yeah. Morsi and yeah. uh, by a China guy Peter Hessler. Right. You know, that particular piece has not. Do you find that he's taking that same sort of? Um, I mean, you know, he's doing something very different now. He's writing about elite politics. Is it's it's not something he used to do when he was in China. He was very much about talking to the the the, the kind of semi literate man in. No. Yeah, he he's doing a different thing there. Okay, but uh, you know I think that's good. Uh, you know I think that like Isabel, who had a China life and then transformed herself as a writer in other places. I mean that is a good thing. If you're a writer, you shouldn't only be able to write about China. That's you and me one day, Jeremy. It's you and me. One day. We will leave one day. Well, I'll well, see. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Who yeah. knows? Maybe. Maybe. Okay, I'm gonna go. I, I've got one. Um, and I'm, I'm gonna oh, no, oh, no, yeah. <laughs> no. I'm gonna go with my recommendation now and leave Isabel for last year. Um, mine actually, and, and excuse the, um, the, the 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 incestuousness here, is actually from uh, a site that I occasionally read called Danway.com. Uh, Danway. Yeah, right. It's uh, uh, a young writer named Allison Goldman. She did a terrific interview with Sydney Rittenberg. It's called Reflections on a Life in China. It's very wise, very candid, and includes some very frank questions and forthright answers about things like uh, his stance during the Cultural Revolution. Uh, are you acquainted with with Sydney? Yes, I am. Yeah. In fact, when Lovely I man, when huh? I first came to, I don't know him well, but when I first came to China, the the rather battered little foreign community that had torn itself to shreds in the Cultural Revolution was still around, wow. uh, very bruised. I can imagine. So this would be like yeah. uh, the 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 crooks and the Hintons. And, Absolutely. Right, right, right. Yes. Wow. Yeah. That was a different time. Other times, other places. Other places. The book yet? I mean, I, it seems like something someone ought to write. I think there have been a few books written, but nobody's tied it all together, right? Okay. They better hurry because these They're people are not. Off. Yeah. 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 I, I, I mean, I was a kid uh, living in upstate New York, and, and one day a car pulled up in front of our house, and out walked Fred Angst. Um, who, you know, he stands about six foot five, but he had all the body language, the mannerisms of of of, of a, a a Chinese person, and he spoke with this really thick Beijing accent. It was awesome. It was I was a kid. I was you know maybe eight or nine, but it, it I remember it like it was yesterday. Who's the freaky Lawai? Yeah, the, freaky, <laughs> <laughs> the Dashan of his day. Isabel, do you have a recommendation for us? Uh, well, I I do, um, and talking of of. Uh, incestuous recommendations. This is um, a book called China and the Environment, uh, The Green Revolution, and it's edited by the excellent Sam Giel, who has worked with us on China Dialogue for many years. Uh, It's published uh, by Z Books in the Asian Arguments Mm. series, and it really tells you the story, indeed, the the, uh, legendary Paul French, and it tells the story of China's citizens and and the environment and all these, you know, protests and movements and things like that. So it's about the people. 
Wow, wow. This is something I'll definitely get my hands on. I I recommend that. That whole series has been terrific. I mean, I just hope he keeps at it. Well, it's a great length, isn't it? Because they're not not great heavy tomes, so they're quite responsive, and they're, you know, on the whole, pretty well written. Mm -hmm. Tom Miller's book on urbanization, really good one. Indeed. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's been quite agile, that series. Okay, great. Hey, thanks so much. It was great to see you. Well, Isabel... (laughs) It's been a real pleasure. I hope we have you back again soon. And we covered a lot, but not really enough. So thank you so much. Well, it's been terrific to be here. Thank you very much. See you next week. My pleasure. Cheers, Kaiser. See you next week. Uh,